I think that idea that order comes from the top and has to be dictated down to the rest of us is the supreme mistake when it comes to understanding where law and order comes from. You are listening to And If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Yes, Rachel, you are listening to that great podcast in the sky, And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Lovett, and I am excited to have on the show today, Carrie Baldwin. Carrie is an independent researcher and writer with a BA in philosophy from Arizona State University. Um, she is also um, the founder and, uh, and works at MereLiberty.com. Um, she's a regular contributor to the Libertarian Christian Institute. And... Uh, she has a podcast called Mirror Liberty, uh, or uh, is that correct? Is that the right name of it? Uh, the podcast is called Dare to Think. Dare to Think. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Mirror Liberty is in the name, just to make sure, because there's a couple that sort of, there's a couple of Dare to Think podcasts that came on after mine. And so I wanted to make sure you could distinguish mine from the others. Okay. So, so Carrie Baldwin, Dare to Think. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, let's, I'm excited to have you on, Carrie. I, I wanted to talk to you. Um, there's a couple things that, that I saw that you did that, that had me very, um, kind of excited for For example, the, the debate that you had with Walter Block, I thought was really fascinating. Um, but, but before we get into some of those things, give me a little bit about your background, your origin story, if you will, of, of, you know, um, both, both your, your Christian background as well as your background in, in libertarianism. Yeah. Well, um, so I'm actually born and raised in New Mexico. Um, I have been a Christian for as long as I can remember. Um, and I became, I, I grew up in a Republican family, um, you know, very pro-military, um, pro-constitution. Uh, I affectionately refer to them as red-blooded Republicans. Um, right. And it was in 2000, it was the 2008 presidential debate uh, where I was, uh, that was the first opportunity that I had to vote in a presidential primary. And I remember seeing like 15 candidates on the stage or something like that. And I thought, how the heck do people choose a primary candidate? And, uh, you know, I had... I had some knowledge about the Constitution, and so I thought, well, the Constitution explains what the executive office does, so I'm going to go f- refresh my memory on that. And so I read through it again and realized that it, Ron Paul was the only constitutional candidate up there. But my um, red-blooded Republican pro-military family sort of that uh, that sort of sense brushed up against Ron Paul's um, non-interventionist foreign policy, and so it took me a while to. Plus, I was, I I, I, I did serve in the U.S. Air Force for a few years um, after nine eleven. Okay, wow, and yeah. So, yeah, so it was a bit of a challenge for me to wrap my head around that. Um, <clears throat> it was actually what helped me get around it, though, was hearing a 
conversion story uh, of an Islamic terrorist who had been in prison. Um, And there's several of those kinds of stories out there. But I just remember thinking to myself, wow, if Jesus can love this man, there's something wrong with my, there's something wrong with my stance. I should be able to love this man too. And, um, and so eventually I came around on the interventionist foreign policy or non-interventionist foreign policy of Ron Paul. And really the rest is history. Um, I was a quote unquote minarchist, uh, you know, constitutional limited government type libertarian for way, way too long. Um, probably a good let's see, it was 2008. It was eight years before I actually finally um, crossed the line over into libertarian anarchism. I did become a libertarian anarchist in uh, 2016. And that was after actually exploring uh, more of the theological implications of uh, anarchism and what that meant and how that you know, played with scripture and that sort of thing. So, right. I think that's, I think that's a logical conclusion that, that I came to as well, as far as just like, um, you know, the, first of all, you know, as a Christian, you we're only supposed to profess Christ as King. Right. And that, and that was a big thing for, for that. I, I had it. It took me a long time to, to, to figure that one out, I guess is the mm-hmm. right way to say that. Um, but, but I also think there's a lot, and maybe the, let me ask you this, because a lot of times people, ask, or I was going to ask, you know, um, uh, I apologize. Let me back up. I think a lot of turnoffs to libertarianism and maybe the party itself, I know it was for me, was the idea of, um, it seemed to be anti-religious, not just, you know, not, not just, uh, you know, do your own thing, but, but, but hostile towards religion and mm-hmm. Christianity, um, for a long time. I think that's changed a lot, but uh, for a long time it was. And, um, I, I, and so I think the question is, I think you've seen a lot of Christians, um, you know, uh, turn to libertarianism, anarchy, voluntarism, however you want to kind of like phrase your, your you know, your color of libertarianism um, come into that fold. But, but maybe a better question is, where did Christians get off, get off track and start like, uh, you know, finding authority in the state? Do, do you have, have you thought about that? Like, where did, where did religious biblical people like start to like think about the state as um a um start start to not have put their their trust in god well you know that i would say is endemic to the history of you know the entire biblical history you know you can go back to the old testament and you know, Israel is demanding a king and the prophet Samuel is saying, guys, this is a bad idea. You, you don't want this. And they're like, yeah, we want to be just like everybody else. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, Samuel's telling him, guys, you're going to lose your sons and your daughters and your property and your future if you do this. Um, and, you know, so that idea of believers turning to the state uh, really, I think, is just endemic in, uh, in the history of, you know, biblical faith. Uh, I include, you know, both old and new Testament in that. And, you know, new Testament times you had the groups of, of Jews who believed that the Messiah was going to be a political Messiah that was going to, you know, free them from, uh, the, 
uh, from Roman oppression. Um, and, you know, eventually, eventually you get uh, the medieval Roman Catholicism that, you know, then they became the state um, or very close to the state uh, in terms of the monarchy, monarchies that existed at the time. And even those, you know, one of my favorite uh, shows that I tell people about is um, the Netflix series Medici, which is about the um, the banking family from Florence, Italy. And even in that, what's interesting about that, it's I describe it, and I don't know that the um, you know the producers of the show intended this, um, but I sort of describe that story as a um, a uh, you know a warning about how monopolizing uh, money or monopolizing power, even for the best of intentions, which in the case of the Medici's was to help uh, Christianity flourish and to um, you know have these classical liberal free market principles. Uh, you know they believed that everybody should be able to build wealth, not just you know the aristocratic elite. But they monopolized, and it was through that monopolization of power and money that uh, corruption began to spread. And so I think you always, you know, you have cycles of this through history um, where uh, there are Christians who feel like, well, our way is better. And yeah, God's way is better. Um, But how do you achieve that? And lots of lots of Christians um, don't check their authoritarian impulse, and so they think that they need to use force or coercion in some form or another. And that's been, I think, endemic to human history. I, I think you're right. I think it, it it often starts as a we need a protector, um, and then it, it does it leads into it almost becomes a shortcut for Christians. Like if I if I, um, it's much easier for to get a you know at least on a surface level, um, you know, get a, a, a nation or a people to acknowledge Christianity. And if you can get the leader to, if you can get, you know, if, if, if it's a, you know, quote, Christian nation, or you have a, you know, somebody who's, who's even at many times in history, you know, forcing it upon the people, mm-hmm. um, it's a much more difficult task to do, you know, missionary work <laughs> and, oh, Well, yeah, and, and change and change the hearts and souls. And so I, I, I see that, in my own church, I see that in, in a lot of churches where, you know, it's even in, even in terms of, um, you know, uh, you know, obtaining property or, 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 or getting um, things to, to, to pass through. Sometimes it, it's like it's, it's, it's you need to you have this top down mentality of, of trying to to get things accomplished that you want to accomplish. And I think it, it becomes a problem in, yeah. in, you know, in the in the Christian nation, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that idea that order comes from the top and has to be dictated down to the rest of us is the, you know, the supreme mistake when it comes to understanding where law and order comes from. Um, I'm definitely a believer in the bottom up approach, you know, that order comes about, um, you know, through spontaneous or emergent order, just from human beings voluntarily interacting with one another for mutually beneficial ends. Um, I believe that's, I believe that's true. Um, and whenever you get a situation where 
uh, one of those parties, um, you know, wants to use violence or coercive control over another group, that's where things become a problem. And that's, that's an, a, a fundamental injustice. Right. Absolutely. What, um, so I guess what is, what would be your take of, of, of Christian nationalism? I'm thinking of the, um, uh, what is it? Douglas? I've had him on the show, actually. Douglas, uh, I can't remember his last name now. Anyway, he, he's in Moscow. He's a preacher in Moscow. Oh, Doug you know, Wilson. Very, Doug Wilson. There you go. Doug Wilson. Um, you know, uh, there's a, you know, but he's not the only one. There's other people that have this, you know, uh, idea of a, of a Christian nation. Um, I, I'm not sure how he intends to go about it or, or what his philosophy is there, but, but tell me you're just that concept of a, of a Christian nation or Christian nationalism as an idea. Well, so Doug Wilson, Stephen Wolf, um, are the, I would say the two major names, at least in the reformed world, reformed world, I'm using air quotes, um, because <laughs> I don't really consider him reformed. Um, you know, but they're sort of the loudest voices. There's a few other people, um, and I cannot for the life of me remember their names, but we had a talk that the guys from LCI, myself and, uh, a few others did a talk, a breakout session at Freedom Fest about Christian nationalism. And, um, you know, I'm sure we can put a link to that in your show notes, but, uh, you know, the, this idea of Christian nationalism is really a bait and switch because what guys like Stephen Wolf and especially Doug Wilson, Doug Wilson does this, the, does this much more than Stephen Wolf, Wolf, but it's sort of like, well, we just want to get, you know, this, this understanding back that our culture is Christian you know, that those are the rules that we live by. So yeah, we're not going to have gay marriage and, um, but we're not going to force you to, you know, go to church or anything like that. And, um, you know, we want to get to a place where blasphemy is taboo again. Like, you know, so he makes it sound like it's this really not a big deal sort of thing, but if you're going to have a Christian nation, <laughs> right, you have to have the state uh, endorse a religion uh, called Christianity. And there's lots, lots of um, understandings of what Christianity is. There are fights among Christians about what Christianity is. Um, there are some that you know, I would say are outright heretics. I think Doug Wilson is one of them. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, right on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, really, whose who's Christianity are you going to make this a nation of? That's the first question. And of course, you know, that's where they pop in and they're like, oh, we mean like, you know, mainstream. Like, so they start. Well, kind for of example, hedging. I, I- I, and, and knowing, you know, having watched enough of Doug Wilson's stu- stuff and, and the people he associates with, there's it's clearly I would not be considered a Christian because mm-hmm. even though I, I accept Jesus Christ as my savior, you know, my my tradition and the people that I associate with is is the Mormon faith. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people would say I'm not a Christian, even though I accept his life his his death and, and you know, that he's the one that 
only one that can save me. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, like I would, I probably would not find a place in his nation, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the big question is, well, what do you do with the people who aren't Christian? And he's like, well, you know, you can still practice your faith. It's just not a public faith. Well, okay. But that's what, that's what the non-Christians have been telling Christians for a very long time is, yeah, you can have your faith. Just don't make it public, please. You know? And so, you know, can we really call that religious freedom? And of course, you know, when you drill down into the brass tacks of Christian nationalism, the reality is, is that what they take religious freedom to be is only the freedom within quote unquote Christendom. And Doug Wilson uses that term um, for uh, there to be some, you know, sort of nuanced disagreements between otherwise, you know, quote unquote, orthodox Christians, but everybody else, you know, you just need to Put your religion <laughs> right. back in the closet, <laughs> right? And that's not that's not religious freedom. Uh, religious fr- freedom is what I would call religious pluralism, um, which is where the state doesn't endorse any religion. Um, and uh, you know, that's not to say that I don't think that there are people who are wrong <laughs> about which right. religion they follow. But the point is, is that you know, that's not a problem to be solved with the use of civil governance, which is legal violence, right? Right. That's not how we solve that problem. We solve that problem uh, through conversations with people and persuasion. And, oh, by the way, don't forget that Christians believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit (laughs) convicts people, not us. So like the state doesn't, the state doesn't do that anyways. It's not, that's not the role of the state. And the other thing that I point out to proponents of Christian nationalism, because they'll say, well, we just want cultural Christianity back. Like we don't even, we don't even care. Yeah. The mere Christianity of, we just want that. Yeah. And I, and I keep on having to tell people we are living the product of cultural Christianity right now. Um, We had the, the, the culture wars way back in the nineties and the two thousands I was a new mom back then. I remember it vividly. Um, you know, like you've got the trad wife now, that that little move. Yeah, that that's that's just a recycled thing from when I was a young mother uh, in the early 2000s, you know, with the mom blogs and the, oh, look at my perfectly imperfect mess. Um, right. <laughs> at any rate, um, we are living the product of cultural Christianity right now. And so you know, why do we want to go back, go back to that? It produced something very, very ugly. <laughs> I don't think anybody would agree that, that the culture that we're living in now is something to be proud of. Um, it's a disaster. And, you know, you want to go back? Like, no, let's actually, if, if you want this nation to be Christian, you have to understand how conversion works that it's voluntary, it's not spread by the sword. Um, this is through loving your neighbor. One of my ver- my favorite verses is Romans 2.4, 2, uh, 2, um, which talks about God's loving kindness being the thing that brings us to faith. It's not, you know, laws. It's not cultural Christianity. It's not, um, you know, <laughs> faking Christianity until you make it. It's it's none of those things. It's none of those things. So, you know, if we want a genuinely 
Christian society, we need to reevaluate, uh, you know, how it is that Christianity is spread and it's not through the sword. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. That's, that's a great take. Um, what, um, kind of in that same realm, um, you know, I, I talked about you earlier about, about kind of the, um, the anti-religious, uh, thread that, that can, mm -hmm. that can be in libertarians and almost a libertine kind of a, kind of a thread. I think, and I think that's changing. I really think the, the Mises Institute and the Mises, um, caucus has really changed a lot of the culture or is trying to change a lot of the culture mm -hmm. and the, the party itself, the party proper. Um, but, but, um, there is still a, a, you know, a, a kind of a dividing line. Um, and, and one of, I think, I think one of the interesting, um, persons, if you will, that, that kind of, uh, navigate that line is Walter Block because, <laughs> mm. you know, and I think he's, a, he's an interesting guy in a lot of ways. He's a, obviously a very smart fellow. Um, uh, but you had a, you had a debate recently with them, um, about uh, abortion. And I think that's turned into kind of a little project for you about the pro-life movement in libertarianism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Kind of, it's, yeah. uh, it's a very interesting and a very necessary discussion to have. Yeah. So um, I, uh, first of all, I, for those who don't know, I debated Walter Block on the topic of a libertarian theory of abortion. Um, it's probably one of the best abortion debates you'll ever hear because it's argued on the same terms. So he took what amounts to the pro-choice side. I took the pro-life side and we're both arguing from a Rothbardian, um, you know, libertarian perspective, um, employing property rights and things like that. Um, and that was put on by the Soho forum in December of 2018. So, uh, you know, I, I started, uh, I had always been near the pro-life movement growing up. Um, my parents were very active with Right to Life. Um, I distinctly remember going to, you know, um, protests down at UNM campus when I was really young and, uh, you know, doing, um, uh, what was it called? Filling, uh, filling letters for, um, for right oh. to life, you know, back way back then, they didn't yeah, have yeah. email, so you had to manually, like, right, you know, fold up paper and stick it in an envelope and lick a stamp. Like that's what we did at my. By the way, I have to tell you, I went to the post office for like the first time, and I can't tell you how long to mail a letter. And I was, I'm like, what a dollar for a stamp? Oh my god, I thought it was like thirty cents. I guess it's right. a deal I am, it's, but yeah, it's, it's been a while. So at any rate, you know, I had been, I had been around the pro-life movement for a very long time. Um, it was a very much of interest to me. Um, by the time I got into college, you know, I had big plans for what I wanted to do and they, long story short, they just sort of fell through. Um, and, uh, after I became a mom and, you know, living in an abusive relationship and, um, also, you know, basically living in poverty, I could start to empathize, although I still disagree. I never, you know, went over to the pro-choice side, but I started to empathize with some of the stories that I heard from women who were seeking abortion. And so after I became a libertarian, I thought, Hey, um, maybe there's another angle here. 
that we should explore. And so, you know, uh, it turns out I do believe that there is a different angle to take. Um, so I argue for uh, the rights of the fetus from conception on the basis of property rights, but this changes the dynamic of the conversation because it also recognizes the rights of the woman. Um, and there's a big question, uh, at least as what I'm, you know, sort of putting out there as a challenge is how can a theory of human rights, any theory of human rights, coherently exist where we believe that the rights of women and offspring are at odds with one another. Um, and I believe they cannot be at odds with one another, but we have to flush that out. I believe libertarian uh, property rights theory uh, will help flush that out. Um, and that's sort of where my, my work is. But I do want to say something about the Libertarian Party itself and this idea that it was, you know, anti-religious and and historically pro-choice and this, that, and another. When the Mises Caucus took over, um, <clears throat> I went back um, and wrote up an article for LCI, which you can find you can find on LCI. You can also find on my website. I'm forgetting the title on LCI, but on my website, it's called uh, "Is uh, Are Libertarians Pro-Choice?" And I just went through the history of the abortion issue with the Libertarian Party since its inception in the early 70s. And long story short, libertarians have never agreed on the abortion issue. Um, in fact, I would say uh, they're the only party. They're the only party that struggled so much with the question that the 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 plank would regularly change. Um, and you know, um, actually, before so the the Libertarian Party was established. Uh, I believe it was in 71, so a couple of years before uh, Roe v. Wade, abortion wasn't even on their radar. It wasn't a thing. And in 73, they, uh, after Roe v. Wade was decided, they went ahead and put something on their, um, you know, they, they put a plank on their platform to reflect the Supreme Court decision, not because this was their thing. Um, but uh, at any rate, there was there was always a question about it because um, people in the Libertarian Party, one, there were legitimate Christians, people who believed that um, the uh, that abortion was a violation of the non-aggression principle. Um, but you also had this question about parents' rights and children's rights that um, never really got sorted out. You can see, and I, I sort of lay it out in this article, but you can see the development and the struggle over what to put in that plank because libertarians understood that children have rights and parents have rights and women have rights. They, they understood this intuitively, but it had never been fleshed out. Um, and so you know what they landed on eventually and what the Mises Caucus eventually removed from the plank was simply that, you know, this is, uh, I forget the exact wording, but it was something along the lines of, you know, this is a very tough issue and there's good faith arguments on both sides. And this is just up to you. Now, anybody's pro-life hears that and they know, well, that's fundamentally a pro-choice plank, even though it's very soft. Um, and so that's where 
people got this idea that libertarians are always pro-choice, but they're not. They they really they the libertarians have not been in, in agreement on this issue. One of the things that I point out in that article is that there was basically uh, the party was basically divided three ways. You had people, you know, a third were pro-choice, a third were pro-life, and a third were like, we don't, we really genuinely don't know. And that's um, not exactly, but is sort of the uh, the demographic that makes up America now. You're right. <laughs> so you've got this large swath of people in the middle who are like, eh, this is a complicated issue. Right. <laughs> Which it is a complicated issue. And, and I think... Um, I think your debate kind of with, with Walter kind of proved that out, that it's more complicated than people think about. Do me a favor. And, and for the audience, maybe if you can, um, steel man, his argument on the pro-choice side, um, mm-hmm. so we can kind of get a feel for, for, you know, the complications and, and what the libertarian theory, um, you know, what he would say would, would, uh, profess or, or tell us. Yeah. So I would say, um, very simply, Walter Block's view is, I mean, first of all, it's called evictionism. He tries to, I would say, argue Roe v. Wade in libertarian terms and in, in terms of property rights. So his view is that, um, you know, a woman has a right to her own body. The uh, An unwanted uh, fetus constitutes an aggressor in terms of um, not like physical aggression, but this is just an unwanted guest. Right. And so he would say you have the right to you have the right to evict a guest from your home. Therefore, you have a right to evict a guest from your body, um, whether that guest is being evicted to their death or not is you know, up to them. <laughs> yeah. So, well, not quite up to them. I don't want to. I want to. I don't want to go that far because he says, like, he would only support abortion up to viability, which is why I say it's a defense of Roe v. Wade in libertarian terms. Roe v. Wade only permitted abortion up to viability. That's the Supreme Court's the one who invented that concept. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, Walter and I would agree that after viability the woman is responsible for finding um, a suitable surrogate of some kind um, if she wants to evict, so to speak, um, uh, after viability. Where we disagree is whether a woman has a right to, quote unquote, evict before viability. And um, so his argument is along the lines of, you know, this is this is an unwanted guest. Even if you invite a guest into your home uh, and they overstay their welcome, you have the right to kick them out. <laughs> um, so okay. that uh, okay. I want to just insert something here because I think that's that's I mean, and I and I I get that that argument, but the problem is it's not like an unwanted guest. It's more like a a renter you know, who has assigned a lease for nine months, you know? Well, okay. So that, yeah. So, um, even so, um, I think that the major problem with the argument is that in a situation with a guest or a renter, you're talking about an adult. Right. Um, you're talking about somebody whose point of origin has come from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so my argument is that every human being begins this way. And so we're not talking about an unwanted guest. We're talking about the emergence of new life. And there's really nothing analogous where we can say, well, this is sort of like 
renting an apartment. No, it's not. You don't emerge like your existence into that apartment and then go, okay, I'm signing a lease now. (laughs) That doesn't happen. Um, Because there's nothing analogous, we have to understand that this is um, something from nature that we need to be deriving normative law from, natural law, uh, which Rothbard was a natural law theorist, uh, um, for example. (laughs) Um, that's, you know, he argues property rights from, from a natural law perspective. And since there's no analogous situation, and this is this, this is the way that human beings come into existence, we should be looking at this, um, as a place from which we derive property rights and normative law from not apply to it. And, uh, so that's my part of the argument is, um, you know, we can't apply, uh, pseudo analogous situations to right. so the relationship it, it, of mom and it's, baby. It's yeah. above. It's above property rights. It's it's natural law. It's like this is this is bigger than you know. Well, and I would I would say I I do believe that property rights will answer the, the question. Okay. Um, in fact, I think that I think there's some interesting um, there's some interesting things to flesh out in terms of things like common property, which a lot of the um, you know, right libertarians will call them don't like the idea of common property. That's a left libertarian concept. But I think if this is a place from which we derive natural law theory, um, it can answer some questions about common property. Uh, because you do have, for example, in the case of the umbilical cord, um, that is created by baby, but it carries mom's blood. Um, and there's a mutual benefit between the two. Um, so, uh, I think that property rights will answer the question. I think it will answer a lot of questions that have been raised, um, that are sort of a point of disconnect between left and right libertarians. Um, and so that's where my, that's where my research is focusing on is fleshing that out. That's wonderful. Well, I definitely, I'd I'd love to keep in touch and talk more about that because I think, I do think that is a super important because we're talking about like, when we talk about first principles, it doesn't get more first principle than life. Right. You know, it doesn't get more first. It doesn't get more um, bottom line than, than what, what do we do, you know, with a, with a child and a mother, you know, and, and a father, but, but specifically a child and a mother in this instance, since they're, they're uniquely tied together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. What, um, and so I, uh, what is your research taking you? In other words, are you planning on writing a book or, or, you know, what do you know? Do you kind of have, a, have an idea avenue of, of where this, you want this to go if you care to share? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I was invited a while ago and it got put on pause because I did take a day job and I'm, uh, going back to my research. I don't like my day job. <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, so, um, at any rate, um, yeah, what, uh, what I want to do actually, because this is, um, broaching a topic of libertarian theory that has been unsatisfactorily addressed by previous thinkers, but is also, um, a place in natural law theory that has been basically unexplored. Um, I want to submit my research for peer review first. Um, I, I expect, uh, that, uh, after I get it peer reviewed, 
that it will eventually turn into a book. Um, but yeah, that's, that is the plan. Well, I will certainly be following it and, and i I'm excited to see where that goes. Cause it, cause like I said, it is, it is very important. Um, yes. One of the other projects that, that you, you've talked about is, is this, um, uh, you know, and we don't like the, the term, you know, those, those who have come from the right, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't like the yeah. term, you know, egalitarian or, you know, um, you know, we may be in favor of, of equal rights and such, but, but the idea that, that, um, um, the genders are the same, um, and especially like in a Christian, um, context, um, like there's, there's a real, um, our culture has, has, has taken, I mean, if you want to see the consequences of, of that kind of philosophy, it's, you're seeing the consequences right now. Talk to me a little bit about your, your take on, on how a libertarian Christian can look at the world and look and see what's happening to uh, gender roles and, and um, you know, how they affect us, um, both, both macro in the macro sense of, of, you know, our society and our culture. But also I think, I think, you know, you know, how it's affecting people's lives. Um, you know, how should a libertarian think about these things? Well, um, you know, libertarianism itself is only a political philosophy. So in terms of how does a, a libertarian specifically address questions about gender roles? Well, the short answer is the government stays out of it. That's number one. And, you know, that's not just, stay out of it in terms of don't promote, say, pronatalist policies, which are policies that say women should be at home making babies. Um, and here we're going to give you huge tax credits if you do that or whatever. Um, but on the flip side, it's not uh, supporting, endorsing, financing, uh, you know, things like gender reassignment surgery and that sort of thing. Um, which, you know, at this point people see there's, the writing is on the wall, right. In terms of our culture. Um, it's, I would say in somewhat of a free fall, but this is, uh, this is a consequence of previous cultural behavior. So I'm probably, um, uh, I'm one of those Christians. I'm I'm otherwise conservative. I believe in uh, gender distinctives. I'm not egalitarian. Um, I'm also not complementarian. Um, but I'm the first one to sort of push back on this idea of quote unquote gender roles because when people say gender roles, it, um, it sort of conjures up this concept of uh, you know the 1950s housewife. And, you know, the husband working outside the home and, you know, this like nuclear family sort of thing. And that's number one, a snapshot in a magazine in the 1950s. Right, right. right. And number two, that's not actually the paradigm for human history. For most of human history, husband and wife, assuming it was even like an equitable sort of relationship, i.e., the husband didn't think he owned his wife. Um, they both worked from home and they both worked, mm-hmm, <laughs> right? Right. you know, and they both raised the kids. Uh, there's this great book. 
Uh, and I'm going to have the author on my show. The author's name is Nancy Piercy. She just put out this book called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And man, she brings up this excellent point, which is that um, the the 1950s housewife is not the quote-unquote biblical idea because that was the first time that women were raising boys by themselves because the husbands were outside of the home. And prior to that, prior to industrialization, um, you know, families worked typically on their own farm or whatever. Um, but the fathers worked with the sons, the mothers worked with the daughters, um, you know, and if they if they had good family dy- dynamics, the father, you know, interacted with the daughter and the mother interacted with the son. But the point is, is that the 1950s is not an ideal because that's the first time when women were really, and I guess you could you could say industrialization um, sort of bleeds in this too. But that's the first time when sons were being raised exclusively by their mothers. And, um, you know, we talk about a boy crisis. We talk about all the things that are happening with masculinity these days. And it didn't start with feminism. Right. It didn't start there. It started with industrialization. And I'm not even, um, you know, I'm a free market capitalist. I think industrialization brought a lot of good things, but we learn human beings learn through trial and error. And there's something to be said about what we can learn about how industrialization, that whole, you know, putting workers in factories, taking parents outside of the home to work, how that has a negative effect on the family unit and the the mental health and well-being of kids growing up. Well, and it, and that and that extends to the children as well. I mean, you know, not not has that uh, you know kind of factory um, ideal, <laughs> you know, spread to to not not just the the husband, but now the husband and the wife, you know. Mm-hmm. And, but it also is now the, it's the same exact thing that we're doing to our children by sending them to a school where you know they're going to class by bell and and right. you know, we, we've been um, fortunate in in raising our children to homeschool them and that's been a real blessing for us and and I and you know something I would just you know no matter what where you are in life I think that's an important thing because you know one of the one of the things that I cherish is the relationship that I have with my kids and my wife has my with my kids and that they have with each other and 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 honestly I think that only came through you know homeschooling and being around mm-hmm. them as much as as we did yeah yeah you know it's it's very easy to sort of romanticize the idea that kids kids should have every opportunity right um, it's very easy to romanticize that idea as put them in school and you go to work and let somebody else raise your kid when the reality is, is that problems in the home started happening and problems with kids started happening when you separated the father from the family, you know, by taking him outside of the home to work. It was not like I hear guys like John MacArthur who's like, men were made to be, you know, work outside the home and women were made to work inside. And it's like, no, dude, no, like you're, that's not a historical approach. Um, So, you know, when it comes to what we're looking at, at the culture, 
um, where I do believe that we are in a cultural crisis. Um, I was just looking at, (laughs) this is a bit of a tangent, but, you know, because of, I don't know if you heard the New Mexico governor tried banning the second amendment here. I did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) that was fun. Um, (laughs) (sighs) at any rate, I started digging into, um, her executive orders and, um, you know, she wanted to declare a public emergency on gun violence and, She's claiming all these numbers about kids getting injured, um, uh, you know, firearms, urgent uh, injuries being seen in hospitals. And just for the record, that data is not found on our Department of Health website. I don't know where she's she's gotten (laughs) that information from, but I did find an epidemiology report from 2018 for New Mexico that talks about quote unquote gun violence and, and what the breakdown is. And a third of it is from murders, but two thirds of it is from suicide. And if you um, go look at the uh, suicide rates for New Mexico, um, men by far are the ones who are committing suicide here. And it's mostly men who are over the age of 80 believe it or not. Um, and that's that's by far the second highest though is older teen boys, but it's not like it's not like a close se- second. there's a there's a pretty wide gap. Um, but it is older teen boys. but um, and those numbers track fairly consistently over the age ranges until you get to age 80. And 80 plus they're offing themselves like no tomorrow. But I'm sitting here wondering, okay, um, why are we not calling suicide a public health crisis? Why are we not asking the questions about why men and teen boys are killing themselves? Uh, this isn't, and and you know, by the way, the mode of suicide is not typically by gunshot to the head. <laughs> you know, that's right. just that's just one way, right? Um, and it's not the predominant way. Um, most of it comes by way, by way of, of drug overdoses. Um, so, you know, why are we not asking these questions? I would, I would like to know. Um, well, if we ask these questions, my guess is, is what we would find out is the way we, uh, the way we view criminal justice, the way we view civil governance and the role of the state in mental health, um, you know, what the economy has, has turned into as a consequence of corporatism, um, and those sorts of things, what, uh, inflation has done and the fact that people can't afford to pay their bills anymore. Like, let's have these conversations and then ask, okay, what is really causing this? It would all go back to the state and it intervening in our lives in unjust ways. Absolutely. And, we should continue that conversation because I think that's an important one. Um, <laughs> I, I unfortunately have, I've got to go teach a piano lesson soon. Oh, so well, I fun. have a hard out. Yes, it is fun. But I, I am super grateful, Carrie. Thank you for coming on. Will you come, come again? I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I would love to come on again. That'd be fabulous. And, and cause I, I think we didn't get to the New Mexico stuff, which is the, the, the second amendment stuff, which is fascinating from a lot of different angles. First of all, that she tried to do it the protests that happened. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that kind of yes. go around that. And then lots the stuff of, that you, lots of angles. 
and and the and the things that you mentioned, I think are 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 extremely valid of, of, because it it goes to a crisis that is you know happening not just in New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, true. Yeah, you know, not just in New Mexico. Yeah, so. for sure. Well, thank you again. Before I let you go, how can people find you? What's the best way for people to listen to you, hear you, get in contact? Um, yeah. Read your stuff? So you can find all my work at mereliberty.com. Um, if you want to support my research on abortion and also help me get out of my day job, you can become a member on my website. Uh, I've got two tiers. Uh, there's a basic tier for just $5 a month. Um, and then there's a premium member tier for 27, which comes with some benefits. Um, and I also teach uh, critical thinking courses online, and I'm gearing that back up as well. Um, and my students who have taken those courses absolutely love them. You can see testimonials there. But yeah, you can find everything, including my podcast, Dare to Think, um, on mereliberty.com. If you're interested in the libertarian stuff from a Christian perspective, we also have reformedlibertarians.com. Um, my co-host, Gregory Baus, and I uh, took a hiatus uh, break over the summer where hopefully going to be getting back into that in the next month or two. But um, that's a great resource for finding uh, about libertarian philosophy from a reformed theological perspective. Very good. Very good. So go check it out. Um, by the way, the the uh, critical thinking courses, are those geared for adults or, or for what? Tell me who what your audience you're looking for for that. So t um, I've, I've done- I'm thinking of homeschool people. <laughs> yes, I've done middle school, high school, and adults. Um, and typically, the middle schoolers and high schoolers are uh, homeschooled. Um, so that is an option. If I can get um, 15 students for a class, I will start one up. Um, so uh, if you know of any, then feel free to contact me. But all that information, what the uh, course uh, content is, you can find on the website under course membership. Um, and you can see that divided up by middle school, high school, and adult. Um, and I do intend to also have some some self-study courses published in the very new near future. Wonderful. All right. MirrorLiberty.com. Go check it out there. Mike is gone. You are listening to End of Love Remains. Gone but not forgotten. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. Trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization. Down.